Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the serious to the frivolous all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. And today we're going to talk about Lily James, Taylor Swift, Bruce Lerman, Meta being sued, Iceland's strike and Matthew Perry's death. But first, we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today the Gadigal people, and pay our respects to Elders past and present. But before we get into the news headlines, what is your personal headline this week? Um, Goal from last week achieved. Went on a date. You're like, that's not good enough. The plot has to thicken. You have to continue to build that momentum as we discussed last week. But I'm just proud of myself. Box ticked. I'm proud of how swiftly you pulled that off. You had the idea like momentarily a few days ago and you've done it. What can I say? That's how easy it was. But you know what? I know, as we talked about last week and after we finished recording, you're like, Hannah, you can't just go on one. You have to keep going. Terrifying, but I will. I'm I'm actually going to follow your advice. I'm glad. You have proven how quite straightforward it is to get on a date if you want to. Really whipped that up in about 24 hours. Yeah, I actually did. And so, you know what? I, I think I'm going to have a week break, maybe. Okay. What's your personal highlight of the week? I was just talking about this before we came in because I was like, I don't really know. Like, I need to start doing more with my week because all I do is work and then I go out on the weekend and be hungover, come back into work. And I was like, no one really cares to hear about that. But then I was like, actually, I do want to talk about my Saturday night because I ended up at at the Sheaf. If you're not from Sydney, you probably don't get how hysterical that is. But the Sheaf was like the go-to spot when you were 18 years old. I see it was Wednesdays was the thing. You go Wednesdays. On, yeah, you go on a Wednesday night. It was a huge deal. And then you hit like 19, even 20, and you're like, whoa, I've simply outgrown this place. Everyone around me is too young. And now I think I've hit that age where I just, I'm, I am the weird older person there, and I don't care. It's fun. It's quite fun. Big dance floor. Huge dance floor. Is the music like, is it like Sing EDM? Along. Oh, slay. I want to glow. I yes. love that. Okay, yeah. I get it. I get it. And you it. just surrender to it and you're like, yeah, I'm here. This is hysterical. I'm be, having the best time. Be drunk enough. Be carefree. Get on the D floor. Exactly. I support you. Thank you. All right, should we get into the headlines? Let's get into it. Bruce Lerman has been revealed as the high profile man charged with the rape of a woman in Toowoomba in 2021. So, I feel like this is a story everyone's been waiting for, and this comes following the overturning of a Queensland suppression law and the rejection of a non-publication order. So, in our episode on September 19, we covered the overturning of the suppression law in Queensland, but just for a quick recap. Essentially, in Queensland, there were laws which prevented accused offenders of sexually violent crimes from identification in the media and public records before they stand trial. So, after they were charged, before they were sent trial, they wouldn't be named. For all other crimes, they could be named. The law was incredibly outdated, and its existence was really predicated on the belief that people make up allegations to damage the reputation of the person they're accusing. The only other jurisdiction in Australia that has similar protections for accused perpetrators is the Northern Territory. So this isn't the norm. It wasn't the norm. It was lagging. Now, there's an important bit. After the law was overturned in September, Lerman's lawyers successfully obtained a non-publication order on grounds that additional media coverage would negatively impact his mental health. So there was a succession of weeks following the overturning of this law where he was he continued to not be named. But last week, his lawyers lost a judicial review of the non-publication order, which meant his anonymity was no longer protected. 
So notably here, I think the judge pointed to three widely publicized media interviews that Bruce Lerman participated in with Sky News, Seven News and Sunrise. I love that the lawyer for the media basically said he wants to be heard everywhere except in court. And the judge tended to agree with that. You know, it, it's it's kind of this argument that if you want to claim in court that you shouldn't be named in public because you're worried about the implications of media on your mental health, you shouldn't be going out and doing every media interview you can and getting paid for it. So I think that's a pretty practical argument. And it means that he's now being named for these two counts of rape he's been charged with, which haven't been set down for trial yet. So his mm. name would have come out anyway when those dates were eventually set, but it gave him an extra sort of year of protection. Yeah. Brittany Higgins, who accused Bruce Lerman of rape in 2019 in Parliament House, has issued a statement as well on this matter and sort of it was really a sentimental statement towards the victim who she's clearly spoken with privately and it just I think that it makes most people sad because what this points to again it's got to be tested in court and that's a really important process but it points to a pattern of behavior and it's really important that I think that the law shouldn't protect accused offenders from being publicised, especially in circumstances where they've been accused by multiple different people. Mm. But also, it raises questions about why it takes multiple accusations to believe a woman who's made this allegation. And so this is just a really complex matter and it will continue to unfold and this court process will, you know, go on and he will stand trial. And I think that when people are named in this way, it acts as a deterrent for all perpetrators. You know, if I am accused of these crimes if I do engage in this behaviour. It's my name on the line. Exactly. And I think it places the reputation of an offender above the above the concept of justice and a victim's right to pursue that. And it might not be that they want jail time or a conviction for this person, but they want to prevent re-offending is is generally what the sort of sentiment of victims is, is reclaiming their agency, their story, and ensuring this doesn't happen to anyone else. I think that was the most interesting part of this claiming that he can't have his name out there for his mental health but Sky News apparently is fine. It's fine. You know there is a right in court to silence for for accused offenders and that's an important right but I think that when you're going and doing every media interview and and getting the the pay packet that comes with that Mm. it's very hard to justify why you would be silent in court which is the place that you can be heard and that if you want to achieve justice you should be wanting to tell your side of the story. Exactly. It's just ironic. Yeah. Matthew Perry, best known for his role as Chandler Bing on Friends, died on Saturday at age 54. This was shocking. This was shocking. This was really shocking. I opened this my phone awful. to a post from the Daily Oz and just everyone flooding social media. It was, it was really sad, really sad. The actor was found dead in his hot tub at his Los Angeles home with the recorded dispatch call saying it was a drowning, reportedly. Um, I think a lot of information is still coming out about this. Apparently, he had returned from his daily game of pickleball at the country club near his home in the hours shortly before he was found unresponsive by an assistant who reportedly had called 911. According to a TV presenter, his pickleball partner had revealed that he left the game early, complaining of tiredness. Pickleball's coming up a lot. Like, apparently he was mad about it. He would play it, like, at least every day, sometimes twice a day. Wow. Yeah. It is very fun. I see it all over TikTok. I've never played before, but if you don't know what pickleball is, apparently it's kind of similar to tennis. Yes. And I think when the news broke on this, everyone sort of collectively hoped that it wasn't due to a relapse in his sobriety. I think his memoir had very recently come out and he'd been really open about that. And I think everyone was like, oh, God, please, surely 
don't let it be that. We don't actually know, we don't know what's happened yet. But so far, there has been no reports of illegal drugs or anything, but several prescription drugs were found in his home. One being to help with COPD, which is, according to the World Health Organization, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is a common lung disease causing restricted airflow and breathing problems and smoking is a big cause for that, which Matthew, again, had been very open about his difficulties in quitting. I think a lot of people are looking to his memoir right now. Um, In his published memoir, Friends, Lovers and The Big Terrible Thing, he spoke of how he wanted to be known for his work to help people struggling with substance abuse. He'd opened up a home for sober living men in Malibu back in 2013. And he actually said, when I die, people will talk about friends, 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 he wrote. And I'm glad for that. Happy I've done some solid work as an actor, as well as given people multiple chances to make fun of my struggles on the World Wide Web. But when I die, as far as my so-called accomplishments go, it would be nice if Friends was listed far behind the things I did try and help other people. It won't happen, but it would be nice. That's really sad. Yeah. A lots of tributes have been flowing since this happened. The main co-stars of Friends actually did release a statement just this morning. We were more than just castmates. We are family. There is so much to say, but right now we're going to take a moment to grieve and process this unfathomable loss. For now, our thoughts and our love are with Maddie's family, his friends and everyone who loved him around the world. We also had Gwyneth Paltrow make a statement. She said, I met Matthew Perry in 1993 in Williamstown Theatre Festival in Massachusetts. We drove out to swim in the creeks, had beers in the local college bar, kissed in a field of long grass. It was a magical summer. I am super sad today, as so many of us are. I hope Matthew is at peace. Selma Blair also called him her oldest guy friend and said that she loved him unconditionally. Adele took a moment to talk about him during her show in Las Vegas on Saturday night. Saturday Night Live also showed showed a tribute card for him during their weekend episode. And Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also made a statement. Uh, A lot of people didn't know this, or I didn't know this actually, but they were childhood friends. And Matthew's mother was actually the press secretary to his father when he was Prime Minister. Interesting. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. So, I mean, there's not really much else to say on this story, except that it's really sad and that it's still unfolding and we don't have all the details yet, but we will keep you updated. Just... Sad. Yeah, it's tragic. Just before we begin, a content warning on this story, which contains reference to intimate partner violence, murder, and suicide. 21 year old water polo coach Lily James was murdered by 24 year old Paul Tyson out of Sydney private school last week before he then died by suicide. Lily failed to return home from work last Wednesday, and then police were called to carry out a welfare check at her workplace, which is St Andrews Cathedral School, which is a prestigious school in uh, Sydney's inner city. Around the same time, police also received a triple zero call from Paul. They both worked at the school as sports assistants. So police arrived at the school just before midnight on Wednesday, where they found Lily's body inside the bathroom rooms near the gym. She had sustained serious head injuries and is believed to have been beaten to death with a hammer. Police officers immediately launched a homicide investigation. Police then traced the triple zero call made by the murderer and established a second crime scene at Diamond Bay Reserve in Vaucluse, where items associated with the homicide were found. On Friday morning, the body of Paul Tyson was recovered. I just, I was reading an ABC article this morning on this It's obviously a horrific story, but I want to accompany it with some statistics. So these are from Our Watch, which is an independent organisation focused on the prevention of violence against women and children. 
So one woman in Australia is murdered by a partner or ex-partner each week, and data shows women aged between 18 and 34 are far more likely to experience higher rates of physical and sexual violence than those in older age groups, which I don't think that we actually understand or recognise. And for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, the rates of violence and homicide are far higher than the rest of the population. And our watch also suggests that three in five women have experienced physical or sexual violence perpetrated by an intimate partner. So it's one a week. Now, we were talking about this before we started recording. I think that there's a specific connection that we feel to this story as women who are around Lily's age. Yeah. We we actually did receive a few messages asking, you know, this is so horrific of what's happened, but this does happen every week. Why does this story get so much more of a reaction. And we were thinking about it and I and I genuinely believe it is because we can see ourselves in Lily a lot. And also we both live in Sydney near to where really this Really near to where this happened. And you know what? I found that last Wednesday all of the people in my life were like, I have 20 mutual friends with her. Yeah. I have, you know, it, it felt so close. It really did feel close to home. It was a school community that's been affected by this. And also I think... For older people, it's recognising their daughters in this. I think that when this happens once a week and we're hearing these names, this is a very public story, so we know all of the details of what's occurred very quickly. Mm. And I think that it is that mutuality and that connection, that community that made it so traumatising. Also, you know, I was thinking on the day of the Year 12 students who had to go into that school to sit their HSC exams, knowing that two people that work at that school were engaged, like one was the murderer and one was the victim. Like that is the trauma that must be just like echoing throughout that school yeah. community would be horrendous right now. The other thing I would point out in this that I think was really shocking was 21 and 24 yeah. kids. And I think there's an element of when you hear of a guy that's had a great education and for the most part seemed normal, you, you'd hope for better in this generation. The thing I think is, and again, I don't know how comfortable people are going to be hearing this. But I think one of the things here is that we tend to distance ourselves from the realities of domestic and sexual violence. We think, oh, it's not happening in my friend group. It's not happening in my community. It's not happening in my suburb. But we know when we look at those stats that it's one woman a week and it's likely that three in five women experience sexual and physical violence perpetrated by a partner, an intimate partner, right? Mm. And so this story has gained more attention for that reason, but it's also hit closer to home. And I hope that that drives change. I hope that that drives attention and understanding that this affects everyone. And I think that's part of it is that I was so emotional last week when I saw this because I thought like that could be me, that could be my sister. And all of the reporting is really focused on the fact that these two people dated for a period of about five weeks. They just five weeks. Five weeks. And they had broken up a few days before. And there's all this commentary that's like romance, you know, gone wrong. No, he murdered her. That's that's it, right? I, I literally was collecting, I want to read out a couple of the headlines I've read over the past couple of days because the media coverage, as expected, has been horrendous. There was one article that the literal headline of it was, Tyson was once a respected school leader, comma, sports captain. That's the headline, right? He's a murderer. Why are we repositioning him as a kid with potential? He made a choice, an active choice to take the life of a young woman 
who he recently dated. It wasn't a relationship. I'm sorry, five weeks is not a relationship. And I wish the media would stop positioning this as like a relationship gone wrong. I remember on Wednesday morning, within two hours of this story breaking, reading at the top of it, it was a tabloid, but I, I still think it's important because they're getting so many clicks. Um, sources report that Miss James had been dating in secret someone she wasn't supposed to be. What do you mean someone she wasn't supposed to be? This is a 21-year-old woman working full-time. She has broken up with a colleague. She is allowed to date whoever she wants, right? Yeah. Why are we constantly repositioning the victim as at any sort of fault for their own murder? There's another article I read. The headline was, After-school sports jobs for Lily James and Paul Tyson led to horror Sydney CBD murder. Their school sports jobs and the fact that they were colleagues did not lead to her murder. Yeah. The fact that he decided to murder her was the reason for her murder solely. But also that headline just doesn't even indicate who yeah. murdered. Like, that gives nothing. No, and, and this is what I mean. Like, there was a study in 2016 done by Anne Rose where they said that 60% of headlines related to domestic and family violence, the perpetrator was fully invisible. Not just, you know, woman murdered by man. It doesn't include the fact that she was killed. It doesn't include any of the stats or the relevant details about the fact that it was intimate partner violence, which is what this is. But there's also the other side of this, which is just trauma porn, which mm. is like, you know, CCTV footage shared on headlines or in articles or, you know, last text before death. It's this constant positioning of evidence as clickbait. When what we're seeing here is a young man took the life of a young woman, couldn't face the consequences of that and then killed himself. And anything that exists outside of that truth is a false narrative. And I feel for her family. And I don't know what this conversation will lead to, but I hope that we can be having more chats like this and discussions like this, which focus and understand and deconstruct and dismantle the media narrative. I really feel for anyone who is connected to the story. Absolutely. And I just think it's really hard because we feel deeply about this because it's, you know, he's not a monster. He's a guy we could know. Mm. And that's the hardest part to stomach is that this is a guy that could exist in any friend group, in any suburb, anywhere. And that's the most important part to drive home is that this isn't like an event in isolation or in a vacuum. This could happen to anyone at any time. In breaking news, Meta is being sued by 33 US states over something that everyone definitely already knows, social media is bad for your mental health. Woo! So, the Attorney General of 33 US states, including California, are suing Meta, the parent company to Instagram and Facebook, over their impact on young people, accusing them of contributing to the mental health crisis and through the very purposefully addictive nature of social media platforms. So in federal court in Oakland, California, on Tuesday, the lawsuit claimed that Meta had knowingly induced young children and teenagers into addictive and compulsive social media use. To quote the complaint, Meta has harnessed powerful and unprecedented technologies to entice, engage, and ultimately ensnare youth and teens, saying that its blatant motivation, of course, is profit. So... It's pretty much saying that despite knowing how bad it is, which they do know, like, for example, we had the Facebook whistleblower who already sort of blew the cover on all of this a while ago. It uncovered that they did have data that linked social media to 
girls' body image issues and body dysmorphia, and they kind of ignored that because the ultimate goal is to keep you online for as long as possible. And so algorithms and advertisements facilitate that, and especially targeting young people who are going to be more susceptible to that. You know, they're the ones that are keeping up with trends. They're the ones that are like, think of yourself at 13, 14, 15, you're going to be a lot more susceptible to needing likes or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, and I can't, think it comes back to that like personal element too. Like, what was your relationship with social media growing up? I was thinking about this and, I mean, we would have been 15, 16 years old at the height of Tumblr. Yes. And that was possibly the most fucked up website anyone's think? ever been on. I, th- I mean, there was really no restrictions on any of the content, was there? No. Yeah. No. Like and Twitter. A- again, on algorithm, it depends what feed you were on. Like, I think, to be fair, for the most part, mine was like beaches and like hairstyles I liked but then you'd also get like some really dark poetry and you know some intense thigh gap photos that then became your aesthetic or your algorithm on it which I thought was really interesting also when I think about Instagram in particular and Facebook I think it was difficult for us or people around our age because when it first came out we didn't have the tools, the understanding, the intelligence yet as being 12, 13, 14 of knowing that social media is a highlight reel and that social media, you shouldn't believe everything you read on it and that this isn't a true reflection of everyone's lives. Whereas I do think the only plus side of kids today is they do have an understanding of like, oh, this is an advertisement or that or to take everything with a grain of salt. Whereas we genuinely didn't have that. Agreed. But then I also sometimes think about this because I completely agree with you, but I'm like, I intellectually know a lot of the time this is a highlight reel, but it doesn't stop me from having all of the emotional feelings about what I'm seeing. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's hard as well. Cause I don't know if children, if I don't have the capacity to like distinguish, how can kids, even if they sort of know it. Yeah. I also think to be fair, we don't actually pick up like advertisement is so subliminal now like it's using methods in ways that you probably don't pick up on I think it is really interesting I I don't know what comes from this I don't know if you can put I don't know if you can take a step backwards once you've opened Pandora's box I don't know how it gets better from here I don't know how you rein it in I don't I don't have enough trust in these companies to do anything off the back of this but in saying that I do think that this happening is good because at least it's showing that we're keeping eyes on these companies because Agreed. it does only get more complicated from here. Yes. So has has Meta responded in all of this? Like, where are we at now? Yeah, so they responded in a statement that says, we're disappointed that instead of working productively with companies across the industry to create clear age-appropriate standards for the many apps teens use, the Attorney General have chosen this path. Mm, okay, interesting. Which, I mean, again, like, it's kind of saying, like, oh, this has come out of nowhere. Where have they done this? It's like, I don't think this we came all out of know nowhere. This. I think in yeah. a lot of ways, this was a long time coming. Mm. I think it's interesting. I think this would be one to watch. Absolutely. Last week, 100,000 women and non-binary people went on strike in Iceland, including the Prime Minister, to push for an end to pay inequality and violence. The women and non-binary people that took part in this spanned across almost every industry, and it didn't just include paid labour. They were also not allowed to engage in unpaid labour, so household work and childcaring responsibilities. Wow. Yeah. So they also had a particular focus on achieving higher wages for immigrant women and non-binary people because they say that their contributions specifically are the ones that aren't recognised adequately or remunerated adequately. 
Something that is particularly interesting about Iceland is that they are one of the world leaders when it comes to gender equality. And this was in part due to a similar strike in October of 1975, which was the first Women's Day off. And that saw a pivotal change in the nation, including the election of their first female president. Wow. So this is something they've done before. And another really striking detail here is that the total population of Iceland is about 376,000 people. So having 100,000 women and non-binary people marching on this day, that's a third of the population. But yeah. We're probably pretty close to the total population that could have done this and yeah. could have engaged. On the day, the nation woke up to all male news teams announcing shutdowns across the country. There were public transport delays. Hospitals were understaffed. It's all basically just comes back to the trade unions, which are the main organisers of this strike, who called on women and non-binary people to refuse paid and unpaid work, including these household chores as we discussed. About 90% of the country's workers are unionised. It's a massive unionised workforce, mm. which is essentially why they could all take part in this strike. Just to compare that with Australia, we only have about 12.5% union membership across our workforces. Wow. Yeah, so it's a, it's a massive gap. The Prime Minister of Iceland has said she wants to achieve full gender equality by 2030, despite the United Nations estimates indicating it will take 300 <laughs> years. That's a big goal. And I thought it was just a really important point that, you know, one of the spokeswomen for the Federation of Public Workers said that an equality paradise should not have a 21% wage gap and 40% of women experiencing gender-based or sexual violence in their lifetime. She's basically saying, like, despite being a world leader on this front, those stats are not good enough and they need to continue to push and not give up because they're close, in inverted quotations, which I just think is amazing. Like, this was... The photos were incredible. I'm so glad we got to do this story. And, I like, you were the one who pointed out, like, the strike population versus Iceland's population. Holy... Holy shit, it's amazing. Insane. Insane scenes. You know what? It's obviously not for great reasons, but it was pretty motivating when I was reading this story. I was like, this is a pretty inspiring story. It's cool. Like, it's It's fucking cool. It's super cool. And I think, and I love that Iceland, who's already such a change maker and already so ahead of the game in so many ways, are just proving, like, you don't go, oh, but in comparison, we're sweet. Yeah. Let's stop here pat yourself on the back, good run. It's like, no, just because it's worse elsewhere doesn't mean you don't keep striving. Exactly. To improve. And also, I really like the focus on, like, immigrant women and non-binary people because it's saying, like, yeah, a lot of women are in better conditions, but we should be recognising the people that are still struggling within that big group. Yeah. I think that's something you hear all the time when it comes to feminist issues like this, which is, like, what are you guys complaining about? It's so much worse for women elsewhere. And... This is just proving that, like, no, I'm setting a standard. 21% pay gap, 40% of women experiencing violence. That's not what we want to achieve. You know, Mm. that's not what we want to be at, and it's not good enough. And I think, I I agree, it's that feminist issue, that classic, like, we'll look at elsewhere. Do you want to go to, you know, like, some other country? And it's like, that's not the point. My living conditions should continually strive to be better. We'll never reach, until we reach equality, we're not there yet. It doesn't take away from doing good stuff. Taylor Swift released 1989 Taylor's version over the weekend, confirming that she did in fact mishear fans when they asked her to duet with Harry as she apparently heard Destroy Harry. Ah, that's a good headline. It's finally here. This would be probably her most anticipated re-recorded album so far, I would say. I think the like pre-saves on this was like beyond yes. anything else yes. by far. It has already broken her own Spotify record for the most single-day artist streams. I think it's like well over a billion now. Holy shit, I didn't know that. Yeah, crushed it. And I just want to go back, like, when this album was first released in 2014, 1989 really did become Taylor Swift's most successful album. I would say that this is when we first saw Taylor showcase the potential to be 
a megastar. Yeah. It's the genre shift. It was an absolute genre shift. And she pulled it off. Yeah. I remember back in the day, Billboard called the commercial success of 1989 downright mind-boggling as it sold over 1.2 million copies within the first week, which was the largest sales week for an album in over a decade. It sent three tracks to number one and earned her more than three Grammy nominations, including Album of the Year. Let's get into the re-recorded tracks because I have so many thoughts on them. First off, I'm going to say, and don't hate me, everyone, I do think I prefer the original album. Same. I, I don't know. And I, you know what? I know it'll grow on me, but I just think the production was sort of off when was, I first heard it. It sounds like kids' bops. You know those like those covers? Really? You know those covers where you listen I know. and you're like, it's a really shit cover? Oh, That's what oh it I wouldn't sounds go like. that No, far. I'm sorry. It, you know what it is? The actual instrumental production is so much louder than the vocals and I think it lacks the angst that 1989 has. This is what I was saying. So I think Out of the Woods for me was probably what got me the most because it's just not angry enough because the only version I listen to now is Out of the Woods live angry version. Yeah. And Shit's good. I can't come back from that. That's the angriest thing I've ever heard. So this just felt too, too light on for me. Can I say, though, the one redeeming factor on the album is I Know Places. Okay. I would also say that New Romantics is better. I think it's close. Well, the other thing I wanted to talk about was an alleged full version of the album's prologue was leaked. Um, which she would have written about 24 years old, if it's true. But it was leaked online by fans, and it sees Taylor getting very candid about the themes in her life surrounding this 1989 era. Now, no one actually knows if this prologue is real real or not, but a lot of people seem to believe it is. And in it, she says, I swore off dating and decided to focus only on myself, my music, my growth, and my female friendships. If I only hung out with my female friends, people couldn't sensationalize or sexualize that right? I would later learn that people could and people would. Well, then they just started Scala. Well, that's what, that's what she's calling out. So she went on to apparently then call out the hate she got for her infamous squad at this time. And she said, maybe a girl who surrounds herself with female friends in adulthood is making up for a lack of them in childhood, not starting a tyrannical hot girl cult. Wow. So I don't know how much of this is true. I think like, even if it's not, she kind of says all of this in her song and in like interviews she's had after this and I think if this is real it is also shutting down those gala rumors especially with Carly Kloss and that is a really interesting take that is if you see me with a guy you're going to call me a slut and so I surround myself with powerful female friendships and you start yeah just making stuff up from that as well yeah It makes sense. Like, I feel like she's been very silent on this over the years. And my whole take has been, why do people need to constantly be interrogating and suspicious of her sexuality when it's her business and it's her private life? I don't know. Again, we don't know if this is real, but like, good for her if it is. Yeah, same. I hope it's real. The other thing I want to talk about, of course, is the vault tracks. They are so good. I thought the vault tracks were amazing. Can you please give me a countdown and give me the order, your ranking system for the vault tracks? <laughs> yes, I, of course I can. Um, okay, number one for me is, is it over now? Yeah. For sure. Okay. And I'll get back into that, but that's like the most Harry Styles linked one as well. Yeah, But that was my number one. Second was Suburban Legends. Come at me. I know people will argue with me for that. Third was Now That We Don't Talk. Four, Say Don't Go. Five, Slut. I really feel bad about putting that fifth because I actually really like that song too. Yeah, see, I'm going one, Say Don't Go. Two, Slut. Three, Is It Over Now. Four, Now That We Don't Talk. Five, Suburban Legends. Yeah, so we're like completely opposite, We really. are completely opposite. That's fine. The next thing 
was, of course, the big news out of this was Harry Styles. So all those rumours that were about Harry Styles collabing on 1989. Well, he did collab in a way, didn't he? Jesus, he's very involved. Oh, my God. But is is it actually about him? Yes. Is it, though? Yes. I feel really bad then because she was so support. Like, why would she- I don't understand why she would release these? Okay, can what? I, can I add? <laughs> no, sorry, sorry. Can I add something controversial? I don't. That's so unlike you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that the vault tracks are vault tracks. I believe she's just written them now. Oh, uh, so I don't like that. If that, I don't believe that. Come on. Don't believe that. It's kind of like all 12 10-minute version. Do you think that 2013 think... Was, Taylor was writing Fuck the Patriarchy? No way in hell was she writing that. Yeah, but I think you can understand that she's writing. She would have had the basis and the bones and the ideas of this from back then, and she's obviously putting a production and enhancing them now. She's writing them all three months ago before she records. I really think they're fresh, and that's why I'm confused by this, because they have a good relationship now. Yeah, but you're now just having a go at her as something that's just definitely not confirmed or true. <laughs> I know, but you you just confirmed that it was about Harry Styles. Yeah, it is. But do you know that? Well, she calls out the reason people are linking it to Harry Styles is because similar to like Out of the Woods, she calls out the snowmobile accident that they've been in, like white snow, red blood. Um, She then also says blue dress on a boat. Of course, there was the famous photos of Harry and her on a boat and she's in a blue dress. Is it that the model thing? And yeah, and then the model thing as well, which was, you know, we did see a string. Harry is very famous for that. So yeah, I would say it's pretty easy to like. Also, he was that era. Okay. And people have been pretty upfront about Out of the woods being about him so if it had the same linking theme with the snowmobile accident that's a pretty clear indication I would say these vault tracks are definitely more aggressive than what we saw in the original album which was also suspected to all be about Harry at the time but like in the original we were just like oh Lolly's bad driver whereas this one it's like models and this Mm. and he's playing around however I personally don't think these vault tracks are as shocking or as awful as everyone is making them out to be and I don't have an issue with Harry at all, even after these songs. My first reason is, is obvious, is we actually have no idea what happened between them, except that it sounds like it was a situationship. Mm-hmm. It was a situationship. They're 20-somethings. They're charming. They're hot. They're rich and famous. None of this storyline is surprising. It, we have no idea what actually happened. If there was any level of commitment, we've all been in a situationship. Like, you don't hate the person. You just hate the situation. That's what I mean. But what I'm, what I'm saying is, like, if it's been 10 years since they dated and this is all true and exactly what you're saying, it's like they're both yeah. different people now. Grow this up. This is so long ago. They're fine with each other yeah. now. So for all the, like, 100,000 people that have unfollowed Harry, I think grow up a little. Touch grass. I love it. You love it? Yeah. Okay, we're at the Q&A section for this week's episode and we are going to address, we had so many, so many, so many messages asking for the update on Gaza. So we're just going to do a really quick rundown on that now. So the Gaza Health Ministry has reported that more than 8,300 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli strikes and while more than 1,400 people have been killed in Israel. On Friday, the United Nations General Assembly called for an immediate, durable and sustainable humanitarian truce between Israel and Hamas and demanded unhindered aid access to the Gaza Strip. 
Now, this motion with the UN was drafted by Jordan. It's not binding like international law mostly isn't, but it carries political weight because it's about how the world comes together and votes in times of large crises, basically. So 120 nations voted in favour of this resolution and only 14, which include the US and Israel, voted no. Meanwhile, 45 abstained. So overwhelmingly, it was supported, but of the abstaining countries, Australia was one. Mm. So we abstained. Our representative argued that it was incomplete, the resolution, because it did not mention Hamas as the perpetrator of the 7th of October attack. Right. There's also this, I think this is so crucial to talk about, at the end of last week, there was this destruction of phone and internet connections by Israel on Gaza and p- plunged them into this communication blackout and essentially created this information vacuum amidst what was the heaviest bombardment and strikes sort of for overnight, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So this is purposeful. Like I just think this is really clearly a sign that they're trying to stop the media from gaining access to what's happening while they strike yeah. at this territory, right? I read a Guardian article over the weekend that during the blackout, reports emerged that as communications were cut off on Friday night, like ambulance drivers could not receive instructions, so they were simply driving in the direction of explosions. It meant aid operations couldn't function. It meant hospitals weren't operating. It, you know, the, we can see the disparity in the numbers right now. 8,300 Palestinians have been killed and this is continuing and there's sort of this second frontier of the war now that Israel's engaging in while people are sort of debating the semantics of like the language of truce and ceasefire and all of this stuff and the hostage situation. And I think it is important, but it's really important that everyone's just saying something and talking about this and continuing to stay updated. Yeah, absolutely. On a complete 180 for that, mm. the other thing we got plenty of messages about was our takes on the Halloween costumes from this year. Please, I can't wait to hear your takes. They were such a great collection. I I mean, to be honest, I thought we were going to have better costumes this year. I was a bit underwhelmed, but which ones did I like? I mean, Amelia Dims was probably my favourite. Mr Bean? Mr Bean. Now, if you don't know Amelia Dims, she's the Chicken Shop Date. And if you don't know Chicken Shop Date, you've got to find out about Chicken Shop Date. It's so funny. And she is great. And she went as Mr Bean and she killed it. Um, I also thought it was hysterical that Kourtney Kardashian went as Met Gala Kim Kardashian. Oh, I didn't see this. That's what that was. Yeah. So that's dressed up as Kim, which, okay, I don't know if this is a fair thing to bring up, but Travis Barker, her now husband, has been quite open about how he had this huge crush on Kim, her sister, back in the day, which personally I would hate. I would hate that. It's ick. Do we think Travis got a bit excited over this costume? (laughs) Oh, yuck, Sarah. Good take. I also loved Kiki Palmer dressed up as Life Size, the movie, which was one of my favourite movies back in the day. It's about a doll that comes to life. So on theme for this year. But loved that movie and I love Kiki Palmer. And... I mean, nothing else really amazed me, if I'm honest. No, your take's the only take I want. I really don't have opinions. I just wait for you to tell me what to think on these matters. Well, that's... (laughs) I don't have a lot to give you, but that's what I have for today. Thank you guys so much for listening again this week. Uh, Please... Tap the bell, follow, rate, subscribe, leave a comment, do it all. It means the world to us. And uh, also send us a message or follow us on bigsmalltalk underscore pod. See you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday.